Thanks, Linda. Good morning, everybody. My name's Tim. I'm the senior minister here. And um, another strange reading from Leviticus as we continue this series uh, on the heart of life. Uh, If you're just joining us, this series has uh, been all about uh, having God at the centre of our lives. What does it look like to shape our lives around God at the centre? And we're looking at the book of Leviticus, uh, where quite literally for... Uh, Israel living in the wilderness, God was placed at the centre of their community uh, in the form of the tabernacle, the tabernacle which was this tent where they met with God, that was where God's presence uh, symbolically dwelt with his people, that's where they met with God and they arranged their entire lives around this tent which had God at the centre. And we're thinking about ourselves, what does it mean for God to be at the centre of our lives in practical terms, in the way that we relate. And we're thinking in terms of our relationships, how do we relate to God firstly, then how do we understand ourselves, how do we relate to other people, and today we're thinking about how we relate to the wider creation um, as a result of having God at the centre of life. Last week Andrew gave us a very helpful image, he talked about Blue Lake, uh, which is Uh, a lake in New Zealand which has the purest uh, water anywhere in the world. Uh, And he explained that the reason for that is because there's a water source which feeds into it from higher up, filtering that water underground so it enters the lake pure. Um, Not much debris gets in the water because of the uh, clearance around where the lake is. Um, And then the lake empties itself every 24 hours uh, and is renewed. And that's a bit of an image for these relationships that we're thinking about. Uh, First of all, God uh, fills us uh, with his love and his presence. Um, We are to keep ourselves pure. Uh, Leviticus says, be holy as I am holy. But we also need to be emptying ourselves out, pouring out from what God pours into us, uh, out to others as a way of living this life uh, with God at the centre. So last week, Andrew focused on our relationship with others. How do we pour out God's love to others? How do we relate to those who are poor and vulnerable? Uh, How do we love our neighbour as ourselves? And today we're thinking about how uh, that uh, love and presence of God flows out of us in terms of how we relate to the wider creation. This is a big issue for our society. Uh, This is one of those issues that we're becoming increasingly aware of as we think about uh, the impact that we're having on our world, on our planet and the things around us. Things like pollution, uh, ozone depletion, uh, carbon emissions and global warming, uh, habitat and species destruction, deforestation, soil erosion uh, and many other things. We're becoming much more aware of the impact that we humans have on our planet. And I think this is increasingly um, a big issue for our younger generations. So when I taught uh, SRI, Special Religious Instruction, uh, at Baldwin North Primary School, I was quite struck that when I spoke to the children and asked them, what are the biggest issues in our world, when we're thinking about how humans have caused problems in the world, uh, what we do with um, the life that God has given us, what are the things that we do that are displeasing to God, their number one answer that they would give me was pollution and climate change. They wouldn't think about things that humans would do to other people. Their first answer was about our impact on the planet. That's how much 
this is on the radar of those primary school students. So it's a big issue, it's one that we're becoming increasingly aware of and it's something that we as Christians need to think about how does having God at the centre impact the way that we relate to the world around us. And it's a big issue because often people will actually say that Christianity and the growth of Christianity is responsible for a lot of the environmental problems that we have. That Christianity is to blame or is a main cause for the destruction that we see of our world around us. So um, people will often quote Genesis 1.28 where we read, God blessed them, uh, humanity, Adam and Eve, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Uh, And people will argue that that verse has shaped the way that humanity thinks about the planet and that it gives humanity the right to exploit the world, to use uh, other living creatures however we see fit in order to uh, live our life uh, and go out into the world. That Christianity, shaped around uh, that verse, has actually been one of the causes or one of the problems in damaging the environment that we have. And we do have to admit that there is truth in that. We have to own that sometimes Christians have used that verse as justification for the exploitation of the world, for using it however we see fit and not worrying about the impact that we have. But at the same time, we have to recognise that that's actually a misreading of that verse and a taking it out of context. Because the context of Genesis 1 is of course that God is the creator of the world, God is the one who is in charge, and he puts humanity in pride of place as rulers over the world, but under his authority. So humans are put in place really as stewards, caretakers of creation, um, or servant kings is another way to put it but that our place in creation is always ordered under the authority of God and as people made in the image of God, we are to reflect God's character and to reflect God's concern for the world in the way that we treat the world. So God is a God who doesn't exploit. God is a God who doesn't abuse what he has made and so if humanity is exploiting and abusing the creation, then we're hardly reflecting the character of God and his concerns for the world. As we come to the book of Leviticus today, we want to ask the question, what does it teach us about our relationship with creation? If God is at the heart of life, how does that flow out into our relationship with the wider world that he's made? Uh, And again, uh, as through all of this series, uh, we come to the book of Leviticus and we need to look at what it says. Uh, We have it here. But we also need to think about, as Christian people, how does the coming of Jesus, change and transform what we read in the book of Leviticus? How does it flow through and is transformed by Christ as it comes to us and the way that we live? And the way I want to break it uh, down is to think about our relationship with the creation, uh, with relationship with animals and then the relationship with the wider creation, particularly the land, that idea of land that we see both in the chapter that we've had read but more widely uh, in the book of Leviticus. Uh, A warning as well, 
Um, one of the things that we've been keen to emphasise is that as we book of, look at the book of Leviticus, we have to read it through Christ um, and understand how it's transformed as it comes to us. But the other caution that I want to give um, is that we have to be careful not to just read our 21st century concerns back into the Bible. Obviously, we're very aware of these sorts of environmental uh, issues and we need to be careful not to just impose those back on the text but to read out of Leviticus through that and then to apply it to ourselves. So I'm conscious of both of those things uh, and you can be conscious of them too and uh, you can question me about anything that we have as we grapple with God's word together. So let's start with this idea of God's relationship with the animals. We've seen glimpses of this through the series, haven't we? Because two weeks ago when we were talking about clean and unclean, we saw that various animals were classified in this way. If they were clean, then you're able to kill them and eat them. But if they were unclean, then they were off the menu and they couldn't be touched or they would make you unclean. And we saw a, a flowchart, which again is too small for you to read but gives a bit of a sense of it, um, that for every type of animal, land animals, sea animals, birds and insects, there are uh, classifications as to ones that can be eaten and ones that can't be eaten. Uh, and again, as you can see down at the bottom, uh, the red ones are clean, eat away, and there's a plate there. The black ones are unclean and you're not to eat them. Now we often think about this in terms of there being something wrong with the animals. If it's unclean, then there's something bad about the animal. If it's clean, then there's something good about it. But we saw also that these categories, they don't quite fit in terms of hygiene. They don't quite fit in terms of morality. Um, and one of the things that uh, this classification of food does is it actually has the effect of protecting certain species. So if something is unclean and not able to be touched, uh, then you are not to kill it, you are not to eat it, um, and so it protects the life of that creature. You are to stay away from it, you are to shun it. Uh, and actually, that's a way for the animals, certain species of animals, to be protected. And the classification system of eating brings this out. So I'll use one example here for sea creatures. The two questions are, you can't read this, but um, these are the two boxes with the questions. The first question is, does it have fins? Okay. And if the answer is yes, then you kind of proceed to the next step. Fins are about movement. It's an animal that's able to move. It's kind of swift in the water. Um, and so in a sense, it can get away. The next question is, does it have scales? That is, does it have some form of protection? Uh, and in the Bible, that word for scales is exactly the same word that's used for armour. So when David fights the giant Goliath, it's the same word describing the scales or the armour that Goliath is wearing as a fish, which has protection and armour in the form of scales. Uh, and so animals in the water need to be able to move and they need to have some form of protection to be able to eat them. It's about, to some degree, sustainability uh, as a food-eating option. Similarly with the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system places some limits and restrictions in terms of how the animals are treated. So in our Bible reading today, we saw that for Israel as they lived in the desert, the only time that they really uh, killed one of their flocks or herds and, and ate that meat was when they were bringing it as a sacrifice to lay it on the altar 
and to uh, bring it to the tabernacle. Um, in doing that, in placing the animal in that way, they recognised that this animal was a gift from God and they were presenting it to God in thanksgiving to him as the one who had provided this for them, but also as a way of acknowledging their sins and failings before God and receiving his forgiveness. Um, there were strict instructions, as you saw in our reading, that you were not to kill other animals in the open fields or even to kill them in the camp other than bringing them as an offering before God to be presented to him and then to eat them as a, as a party or as a feast, feasting with God as you enjoyed what he had provided. Now part of this was to pre prevent idolatry. So you see that quite clearly in our reading, don't you? In verse 7 uh, it speaks about people... Um, offering sacrifices to the goat idols, whatever they were, some sort of local gods that people might have been tempted to sacrifice to. So there was a danger of people abandoning the true God, offering sacrifices to other gods, false gods. And so in a way, insisting that the sacrifices were all brought to the tabernacle was a way of protecting that. Um, but there's another principle at play here as well, and it's actually about the respect to a degree for the animal and its life as it is killed and eaten. So three times you might have noticed in this passage we read the phrase, the life of the creature is in the blood or something similar to that. Shedding the blood of an animal is not a casual thing. This is a sombre thing, a serious thing. So the Israelites are permitted to eat meat. They're not called to be vegetarians. They're able to eat meat but they are to recognise the value of the animal that they are eating, that it has life in itself which is taken to provide sustenance for them. Now think about it, if every time you, you kill an animal you're bringing it to God and you're offering it to God, you will have an attitude, won't you, that this is a gift from God, it is something that God has given you and you need to take it seriously. The blood of that animal is being used to atone for your sins uh, and then you feast on that meat with your family and friends, you'll be very reverent, won't you, and full of thanksgiving uh, as you do that. There'll be nothing casual about it. Now you notice here that the Israelites can also hunt for food and eat it. So in verses 13 and 14 of our reading, right at the end, it talks about hunting wild animals and eating them. So it wasn't like the only time they ate meat was when they offered a sacrifice to God. They could hunt other animals. But again, that same command about the life of the creature being in the blood is repeated. There's reverence and there needs to be careful consumption uh, as they eat that. Now as you go on in the Bible, uh, Leviticus is written as the people of Israel are, are in the wilderness. And as you go on in the Bible, we see that Israel enter the promised land of Canaan that God has given them. And these laws do expand a little bit. It's no longer the case when you get to Deuteronomy uh, two books later, that every time that you kill one of your domesticated animals, that you must bring it to the tabernacle and later the temple. Uh, that's not the case, it's expanded. Uh, part of that is because as Israel spreads throughout the land, it's, it's impossible for every time um, you need to uh, kill an animal in terms of animal husbandry to ship it all the way to Jerusalem or wherever um, the, the tabernacle was uh, at the particular time in Israel's history. But as it's expanded out, we still see repeated this idea of the life of the creature is in the blood 
uh, and needing to treat uh, those uh, killing of those animals with some reverence, with care and with respect. So what's that got to do with us? Let's think about that. Again, remember we need to think about how does this come through the coming of Christ, the Jesus window as we've been calling it. How does it transform for us as Christian people? Well, we have seen in previous weeks, haven't we, that these food laws don't apply to us in quite the same way. Uh, Jesus expanded what could be eaten. He removed that distinction of clean and unclean in terms of what we eat. And we've also seen that the sacrificial system is transformed, that Jesus, by his death on the cross, offers the one true sacrifice for sin, that he makes atonement with his blood for our sins. And so there's no need to offer animal sacrifices for sin anymore. So tracing this through, we, we could think, well, there's nothing in this about the treatment of animals that applies to us anymore. As we come through Christ, this is all done away with and changed. But I think we need to be cautious about just throwing the entirety of it out. Because often what is the case with the laws of Leviticus is while they don't apply to us as law anymore, it's not that you must do this or you're disobeying God, as we see those things come through Christ, we realise that actually within that law there was a principle underlying it. And while the law doesn't come through, the principle is a good principle for us to be thinking about and applying to our own lives. And here I think the principle relates to a degree of respect for the animals that God has made and a warning about being exploitative, about being wasteful in the way that we treat animals that God has made as part of his creation. Now again, the application is not go all, all go out and be vegetarians. I know some of you are vegetarians and that's, that's fine. But the Bible seems to be fine with us eating meat. It's not excluded. But we need to admit that in our society, which is a very much a consumer society, we're very disconnected from the food that we eat. We don't know necessarily where it's come from, how it's been treated during its life. Uh, and we do need to question, you know, should we be consuming as much um, as we are consuming, particularly in terms of animals? Uh, again, this is one of those issues that we're becoming increasingly aware of. We're much more aware of, you know, free range and, and uh, how animals have been penned up perhaps in their lives. But there's a lot more that we need to think about and frankly it's just easier not to think about it but just to keep doing what everyone around us is doing uh, which is the easy thing to do. But the challenge of course for us should be is that the biblical way to do it and how does having God at the centre of our lives and thinking seriously and practically and thoughtfully and carefully about God's attitude to his creation and having God at the centre impact and change the way that we think about this? Should it change the way that we eat? Should it change the way that we relate to these animals that God has given us for food? This principle of Leviticus, that the life of the creature is in its blood, is reflected more widely in the Bible. That there is a respect for the wider creation that God has made, that they are not just here merely for our exploitation and consumption, but we need to think more carefully about it. And again, if we're going to trace this through the Jesus window and particularly think about where we are headed in Christ, we need to remember that God's concern and the Christian hope is not merely for 
spiritual things, but actually for a redemption of the whole of creation, including our bodies and everything that we see in the world. So as Christian people, our hope is not that uh, our souls will escape our body and float away to some disconnected place. As Christian people, our hope is as Jesus was raised from the dead, bodily raised and transformed, so too our hope is that we will be raised as Christ was raised, bodily raised from the dead, to live forever with God in new heavens and new earth. Our hope is a new creation, that we will be renewed bodily, but the whole of creation will be renewed, a new heavens and a new earth. Uh, and as we look at this theme in the Bible, we see that animals form a part of that. The wolf and the lamb lying down together, the calf and the lion and the yearling being led along by a child. Both of those images from the book of Isaiah. There's a sense in which God is committed to the whole of his creation and that animals are not simply to be used and abused by humans with no thought for their well-being. We're stewards and we're overseers of creation and we need to do that in a way that reflects his character and his love for the creation. And this reality has impacted Christians through the centuries. So the RSPCA, uh, which is the oldest animal welfare charity, uh, was founded in 1824 by a group of evangelical Christians. Uh, amongst them, one of my great heroes, William Wilberforce, uh, who's most well known for his opposition to the slave trade. But he was part of this group that actually formed the RSPCA and thought we need to think carefully about the treatment of animals who are also made by God. If you've seen the movie Amazing Grace, which tells the story of uh, Wilberforce's life, in the opening scene of that he's, he's travelling in a carriage and he sees a man mercilessly, mercilessly um, flogging a horse and he stops the carriage and he gets out to rebuke the man for his treatment of that animal. And it's just a little glimpse in that movie of this, this attitude of he and his friends uh, and their care for the animal creation as well as his deep concern for fellow human beings who are being mistreated as well. So I think if we think about Leviticus and the principles that are there, it should challenge our thinking and our behaviour in terms of our relationship to animals that God has made. We should ask the question, okay, what do we eat and where does it come from? Is it a suitable amount or should we actually adjust uh, how we're doing this? Are we wasting uh, food which comes from animals? Uh, I think the first step is simply to examine our lives and to ask these questions and the next step would be to make some practical changes that we think are appropriate to have God at the centre and living this out in relation to creation. This is why uh, throughout this series we've been talking about this idea of a rule of life, which is really just making careful, deliberate choices about how we live, thoughtful patterns about how we'll live. Uh, and this is one area that I don't think we think about and we need to ask the questions, assess it from a biblical perspective and we may need to be much more countercultural than we currently are being. So that's the animal creation, as we see from uh, the book of Leviticus. But we can also broaden this out further and think about, okay, what about our relationship with the wider creation, particularly 
the physical environment in which we live? What's the relationship with the land that we see reflected in the book of Leviticus? Now again, as Westerners, we are often quite disconnected from the land. We think of land as just a place where we happen to be. Uh, We don't necessarily have deep connections with the land. Uh, We're very conscious, I think, as Australian people that um, Aboriginal people have a much deeper connection with the land, that sense of country, uh, than uh, we from an Anglo-Saxon heritage or um, often other cultures might have. Uh, Actually, one of the biggest problems that has been caused in this country is removing Indigenous people from their land that they have a deep connection with uh, and thinking that it doesn't matter when in fact it causes deep social upheaval. So what's the Bible's view of the land? Well, in Leviticus we see that the land is not simply a neutral location where the Israelites will live. Um, There's a series of points, I think, on the next slide, Bruce, which kind of sums up some of these things. So through the book of Leviticus we see that the land can be defiled and actually um, the land is said to vomit people out because of their moral behaviour at certain points. So the land is not neutral and people's behaviour impacts the land and has implications for them. Uh, In chapter 26, which Andrew is going to look at with us next week, we see that there are warnings to the people of Israel that they will lose the land, they will be ejected from the land if they continue to disobey God. So moral behaviour is not simply disconnected from the physical environment but is deeply connected with it. Uh, You learn in Leviticus that the land needs to rest just as people need to rest. So for people, the principle is the Sabbath day. Every seven days the people are to rest from their work, to stop work, to spend time with God, to cease from the busyness of life. But the land gets a Sabbath as well. It gets a Sabbath year. So every seven years, they're not to sow seeds in the ground. They're not to prune their vineyards. They're just leaving the land be and living off whatever it produces without them working the land every seven years. It's a way that they have to rely on God to provide, but it also recognises that the land needs rest just as people need rest. And they are not simply to exploit every single thing that they can out of the land, but to rest it and to allow it to do its own thing in that seventh year. And underlying these ideas are the key principles that the land belongs to God, that's stated explicitly in chapter 25, and the land is a gift from God to his people. Which is why whenever the Israelites had a harvest, the first uh, crops that came from that harvest, the first fruits, as they were called, were brought to the tabernacle and offered to God, which was a way of saying to God, we only have this because you have provided this for us. You've given us the land and you've given us the produce and we're offering it back to you in thanksgiving, that principle of offering the first, the best to God as a way of recognising that every good thing comes from him. As Andrew reminded us last week, these realities of the land belonging to God and being a gift from God flows out in terms of how we use the land for other people. So the Israelites were not to uh, harvest their land right up to the edges, but to leave the outside so that the poor could come uh, and glean um, from their fields. 
It's a gift from God, therefore it's not merely for our own use, but also to be used for the good of others. And we saw again last week that the land was supposed to revert back to its owners in the Jubilee. Every 50 years, uh, people, if they had lost their land and had to give it up, were given it back. Again, because the land actually belongs to God and the people were merely tenants looking after the land and people were able to return to their land in that 50th year. So you see through all of this that the relationship with the land is actually very powerful and it should challenge uh, any view that we might have of just a disconnected view of the environment or seeing the environment simply as a resource to be used or exploited. But how does this come through the Jesus window? How, does this, how is this transformed for us who are Christian people uh, looking at uh, Jesus and his relationship to the book of Leviticus? Well, we do need to be very careful here because Christians often get this one wrong, I think. For Israel, they were talking about a very particular piece of land. Right? These laws and what is being spoken about in Leviticus relates to Canaan, modern-day Israel and its surrounding, which God had given to the people of Israel as their promised land and their promised place. Uh, and some Christians want to bring this straight through the Jesus window and say that is still the place that we need to be concerned about, that particular uh, piece of land in that particular place. This is a big issue in Papua New Guinea when I was there in January and I was teaching about this, the whole story of the Bible um, a very wise CMS missionary in the audience put her hand up at one point and said, Tim, can you just explain to me, please, about how this idea of the land, the place that God gives to his people, applies to us as Christian people? She was a Dorothy Dixer. She wanted me to spell this out clearly because in Papua New Guinea, lots of churches will spend lots of money and lots of time trying to um, reconnect with the land of Israel as the promised land and the promised place for us too as Christians. But as we come through Christ, what we see is as the people of Israel is expanded so that God's people is now anyone who trusts in Jesus across all nations, across the whole world, so too the place that is important to God and his concern and where the people are to be connected who follow Christ is actually the entire world. It's not just that piece of land, that strip of land uh, in Palestine, which was Israel's place, but actually the whole world is the concern of God and his people, which is how it was in the creation, of course. It was narrowed down to a single people and a single place so that God could fulfil his purpose in Christ and expand out to a wider people with a wider concern for the whole world. And those two principles of belonging to God and being a gift from God are applied in the scripture not only to the land of Canaan for Israel but to the whole world. So in Psalm 24 we read that the whole earth belongs to God and in Psalm 115 we read that the whole earth is a gift to humanity from God. So tracing this through the Jesus window and thinking about this we need to Think about how do we as Christian people treat the earth and how do we use it? So clearly, we Christian people should not be people who exploit the earth or are happy to see it damaged and destroyed. Remember again that we are stewards of the creation under God and our attitude to the creation should reflect God's attitude to the world, 
the fact that he loves it and he is fully committed to redeeming it as well. Again, part of the reasons that we, we Christians get this wrong is we often spiritualise our religion. We, uh, at times, have focused on the fact that um, it's about saving souls, some spiritual part of us only, and we've had a view that it's about, uh, our hope is about our souls escaping from our bodies and going to heaven uh, in some faraway place, and that's the entirety of our Christian hope. Now, of course, when we die, we do go to be with God, and heaven is the place where he is, but that is not the end of the Christian hope. Our hope, again, is that as Christ has been raised from the dead, so we too will be raised from the dead, bodily and entirely and transformed. And the same is true of the creation, that God is concerned for the creation. He wants to redeem the creation and the future hope of the creation is that it will be renewed in a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, My kids listen to a lot of Colin Buchanan uh, music and I like it, I like, I, I like most of it but there's one song which is very catchy and I find myself singing it but I, I can't agree with it. Um, it's a song which is, the lyrics are passing through, passing through on the way to heaven. God's people are just passing through. As if our life in this world and what happens in the world doesn't matter because we're just passing through and we're off to heaven. And that can often mean that Christian people think well, we can just trash the world. Who cares? You know, God's going to um, take us away from here to heaven. But if our future hope is fixed on the reality that God's going to raise us from the dead and God's going to redeem and renew the creation, then it actually matters what we do to the creation now. We need to live in light of the future hope that God cares about his world and will redeem his world. And so the way that we treat the world now is a reflection of its future redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns. Working for its renewal and restoration, using the resources of the earth wisely and well, working to counter the effects of human pollution and climate change. Great that the swamp kids last week were out there picking up rubbish in our local area because that's a reflection of God's care and love and redemption of the world. Thinking about our own lives and actions and how we relate to the world, knowing that the world belongs to God The world is a gift from God. We are merely stewards and servants here looking after the world under God. Again, this is where this idea of a rule of life comes in because it requires us to take careful, deliberate, thoughtful decisions about how we shape our lives, the decisions we make, and whether it does reflect having God at the centre and God's concern for the world that he has made. If we don't stop and assess our actions and their implications, then we will just go on doing what we've always done and we'll go on doing what everyone else does, what is easy and convenient. But the theology that we see and the concern that we see in the book of Leviticus for the land, I think does flow through Jesus to us and it should challenge what having God at the centre means for our relationship with the creation. What practical changes do we need to make as we stop and we think, how can my life better reflect God's attitude to creation and which is consistent with the future, living for the future now that God is planning on restoring and redeeming the entirety of his creation. So how can we reflect that in the here and now? So let me pray for us as we think about this.
Our Lord God, these are are big and complex issues and we recognise that. But we ask that we wouldn't just allow the complexity and the difficulty of change to paralyse us and stop us from doing anything. What little steps do we need to take, God, to reflect your concern for the creation that you have made? What ways do I need to change, God? Please show them to me by your Holy Spirit and give me the courage to put them into practice in my own life, into our lives, uh, so that we would better reflect your attitude to the creation and the place that you are taking it, the future hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask it for his glory. Amen.